I used to do a lot of singing. But in COVID land, I'm now the most feared member of society, a trained tenor. Yeah, sing- singing is um, counterindicated at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about how to approach new opportunities, challenges at work, career changes, that sort of thing. So full disclosure, the four hosts of this podcast have all changed jobs in the last 12 months. And it made us kind of stop and think about how new years come with new changes and new times. And sometimes those opportunities are things that you need to meet actively and not sort of let happen to you. And so we wanted to do an episode kind of talking through some of the professional and per- the professional and personal challenges that that face people in our industry. Yeah, and, and sadly, far too often, a lot of that does require a, a changing of the job. Uh, just depending on the, the place you work, there may not be a level above you where you can work towards. Uh, or it just may be that you have conquered all the challenges that you needed at your current position and you have to move on to get something different. Most of my positions have been with smaller companies, which is what I like, um, but it, that does limit your upward mobility. There's usually, it's either too flat or, you know, your manager is related to the other guy and, you know, whatever. It, it just really slows it, makes it more difficult. And so I've moved around a lot to change positions to find new challenges. And our career is really bad for having lots and lots of career changes relatively quickly. The average is like every two years, every three years. Yeah. Well, I think that's the average that it won't look bad. <laughs> you know, people won't look bad at you, but I, I know there's people who do it yearly or even more rapidly than that. I've definitely looked at resumes and seeing, you know, uh, employment opportunities that lasted a year or nine months or 18 months. And there are definitely a lot of people that move around quite frequently. And I've, I've never been one of those. That's not what I enjoy doing. I have two on my resume that are sub-year. Neither recently um, and both. Well, actually three now that I think. Oh, good grief. Now, I'm, now I do look bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but before you you bail on your current employer, before you drop the thing that you're, you're currently doing, there's a bunch of ways to bring new opportunities into the job you already have. And for me, the first the first and foremost of these is in every job that any of us have ever had, the the us hosts and all the listeners out there, there are things you can do in your current position that you can do better. You can work on your coding skills. You can work on your documentation skills. You can work on all kinds of things that will make you better at work, that make you happier, get you more challenged and more engaged. Or I've done this before, invent a project, figure out something the company isn't doing that they need to be doing better and go to your manager and say, Hey, we have this, we're missing this thing here. I, I would love to, to pull off some of my time and work on something else. And that can foster enough newness at times to help push you into doing something more fulfilling. And it, it, it may also, uh, you know, well, one, it shows you have initiative to your manager, but two, it may lead to a spark 
uh, not only to your manager but to your team uh, that will help uh, just the overall, uh, I guess, the progression of the team in general. Just it, it just helps out a lot of things. It's a lot easier to sell something new if you can show the benefit, even if it's for you to learn. If it provides a benefit overall, yeah, managers are like, oh, wow, we didn't think of that. Or we haven't had time, but if you really think you can get it done, you know, it it makes you look good and it helps the company, man, and win-win. And everybody, it shouldn't be a tough sell in that case. I think frequently we get, or I get, uh, sort of stuck at a plateau where the team or where myself is just, you know, we're eight hours a day trying to keep the house in order and you need some sort of spark of change of, of rethinking to be able to adjust the workflow uh, sometimes to adopt a new practice or enable, enable something to be better automated so you can build in more time by improving um, to accomplish some new projects. And, and maybe that's what the new project is. And that's always a signpost for me that, that some spark of change, something fundamental needs to shift a little bit. And something that I've really challenged myself over the last, uh, probably the last few years has really been trying to better my documentation habits and standards. Uh, I try now if I write any new code or uh, update like an existing Terraform module, if there's, if I'm doing steps that aren't written somewhere to write them out and, and commit those somewhere uh, so that way, uh, documentation better is, is better, and it helps out the team if someone comes behind you later on and tries to do it. My experience uh, is no one likes documentation written by somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and that is true. Yeah. That is... <laughs> yeah. yeah. The corollary to that is that if you are picking up a new project or a new tool and there is no documentation at all, you curse the person who didn't write the documentation that you otherwise don't want to read. Right. <laughs> I, I was about to say, as much as I don't like somebody else's documentation, I like no documentation less. It's always preferable to have something. Right. A good signpost for me is working on a project. I think Terraform is good at this, that enables you to insert some documentation really easily throughout the code. Uh, every time you define a variable in Terraform, there's a description field. And yeah. those are really handy to document your Terraform modules much like the Prometheus help um, statements in the exporter format. Exactly. So you can have yes. a description of the metric right alongside the metric. So when you're scraping it later, you know at least vaguely what this thing is. I, when I was doing Java development, they, the IDE I was using had hotkeys for insert, inserting the Java doc while you were working. And then when you, later on, when you, or over a variable, you could highlight it, and it would show you the description of what that thing was if you had taken the time to put it in originally. And that That's type, really handy. And, and it was so easy to do, we did it. I'm not a documenter. I'm That's something I always have to tr force myself to try to do. And that made it so easy. And it provided so much functionality down the road, especially when you came back to your... To your own code six months later and couldn't figure out what the hell you did <laughs> so i've had really interesting challenges or i think it's a really interesting challenge uh to start a new opportunity as a team lead uh, and i've done this a couple times at this point and it's 
it's still kind of weird to me of walking into a new environment as sort of a team lead of that environment and try to figure out how you get started, how you get enough understanding of what's going on on the ground to be able to build those relationships and and form that team and lead that team. And I've always sort of accomplished leadership more naturally, maybe, um, you know, by kind of working my way up and not just walking into a new team. Um, so to me, that's that's very new and different and interesting challenges. And And to be clear, a team lead and the manager of a team are different things. You can be very. the person who's yeah. running the technical operations or whatever it is and directing project work and things, but not be the person who's writing people's performance evaluations and doing the HR side of paperwork. And if you don't have a desire to do the HR side of paperwork, but you really want to own a project, it's a great way to do it. But yeah, figuring out how to get enough familiarity with with the existing art um, to get to you know, pull yourself up to to know enough to be able to to be a good and effective team lead, um, to me is an interesting challenge that I've that I've come to enjoy. This is my new position that comes with authority and responsibility. Um, that I haven't had before ever, um, and with a incredibly culturally diverse team. I mean, we're and we had our we had a meeting the other day with eighteen people from nine different countries. Wow, <laughs> nice! And it it it's very interesting um, trying to lead in that type of situation where you know everybody is speaking English because that's the common language, but not all of them also well. And it's, it's very, the challenges on top of the technical challenges, the communication challenges are, have, are very interesting. And I, not, I have nothing to offer as, right now because I'm just getting started myself. But it is a challenge and a half. And kind of finally, um, digging into a new technology stack, can, it's kind of like a, doing a, running a project. But years ago, I was frustrated with our tool, and I ran across this little utility called Graphite, which was kind of weird at the time. I was like, this, this actually would make our monitoring system a little bit better if we didn't have all of these statically rendered, horrible RRD tool images. And I kind of ran with it. Hey, and don't knock RRD tool. No, RRD tool is really awesome if you love <laughs> RPN, but it's one of those things that scratching that itch for me kind of on my own time working on things on the side it wasn't even a formal project it was just i thought it would be useful that turned into the new platform for the the organization's um graphing and visualization of data and then it's become a really handy way to leverage other parts of my career and that brought up a lot of people around you on the same team as well yeah so a new challenge I have is is an opportunity to do API monitoring. And I've discovered that uh, this new opportunity does quite complex and quite uh, really complete um, synthetic API monitoring, uh, which is, and I'm, I'm familiar with synthetic user monitoring. You know, can you log in, uh, hit a couple API endpoints, and can you do that from various places around the world so you understand how your application performs for your user's perspective, wherever they might be. And I've discovered a very complete set of 
API monitoring that happens around the world, which is new and different for me. And it's a different tool. Um, it's a different method of, of doing that synthetic user monitoring. Um, and usually I've done some synthetic monitoring, but most of my API unit tests kind of monitoring is very internal. Um, so that's something I look forward to figuring out better and, and getting a better handle on because that will broaden how I build uh, visibility and observability stacks. And I want to say again that a lot of these opportunities that you come to in a current job are only available if you take the time to assert yourself and do it. These are almost never going to just land in your lap. You have to be active and you have to be attempting to get them and to drive them forward. So look around. If you're if you're feeling idle, if you're feeling like you need a new challenge, almost every organization has other challenges. And there may be political or technical or financial reasons that it's not going to work out that way. But if you're not looking for them, you're not going to find them. And that, and that may mean getting out of your comfort zone too. And I know that's, I've had to do that in the past where it's like, uh, you know, you're, you feel safe what you're currently doing or where you're, what you're, uh, where you're currently at, but then to push yourself a little further, uh, you know, you, you will get rewarded with better opportunities or, more responsibility or leadership. Yay, embracing change. Now, 2021, here we come. Yeah. <laughs> there are times, of course, that this is not going to work for whatever reason, be it a nepotism inside the organization or a financial constraint that's limiting the organization's ability to grow into a new area or simply frustration with the way things are. And you or find bad yourself... economy uh, ends up taking away opportunities or a good economy shows up and then you are offered, you know, the proverbial horse head in the, in the, in the bed. And you say, well, I guess I'm, I'm going to take that seriously. <laughs> so that's what you think about changing jobs, Brendan. Make me an offer. I can't refuse. <laughs> um, but when you're, when you're, when you're hitting the, the, the opportunities that come with a new job, there's a lot of extra pressure because you're not only, establishing yourself with a, with a single new piece of the puzzle, you are now having to go through the entire process of learning a new organization, learning new people, learning new processes and things, as well as digging into whatever the new role is. And there's a lot there. Yeah, what Brendan said. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, it's, I'm just thinking back to the past four months for me and switching jobs, switching countries, continents, and ramping up not only the technical side, but the cultural side, the legal side, getting rolling in a country that's Can you don't not do even things English. easy, do you? And and then yeah, and and, and doing it in the times one, of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Where there's no water cooler to get any information around or you know, none nobody that you need to ask questions to is in the office and the only way to to start hitting people up for information is contacting somebody that somebody else said, Hey, ask this person who you've never met, never seen, and is just a Slack, you know, a handle on Slack. It's really, really difficult. You're playing the job change game on nightmare difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> it has been, and well, what's the, what's the old curse? May you live in interesting times. It's been interesting. <laughs> it's definitely been interesting. 
and but rewarding. I wanted to highlight. Yeah, I, I wanted to highlight something though. As you're leaving an, an old position, as as you're winding down your current job and moving on to something else, one of the most important things to do is handle the exit cleanly and gracefully, and make sure that you hand off projects and everything else as much as you can, because you never know when, especially in our, in our field, when you're going to run into somebody professionally again, either alongside another team at another organization somewhere down the road or being hired back. Um, I have been hired back to organizations in the past and I was so happy I hadn't burned any bridges because there were, there were a handful, a small handful of people that I would have loved to read the riot act to, but it's like, no, no, have restraint, be professional, just be cool. I've left jobs because I couldn't stand the place anymore. And I've left jobs because I just have an opportunity I can't ignore. And in both cases, or doing consulting work and, and changing clients, in all these cases, it's it's just super important to be professional and be able to do a clean handoff and not burn any bridges. Because you don't know when you might need to cross that bridge again. Well, there's never any downside to acting professionally. And no matter how good it might feel to let loose on somebody, you never know when you'll walk into that interview, you know, five years later and And find them sitting on the (laughs) other side of the desk. So it's just not worth it. Yeah, the the next piece of this of the of the changing jobs is when you're diving into a new organization, you especially if you're motivated, you are going to feel terrible for the first couple of weeks as you are floundering. You you've been used to being in an environment where you know where the bodies are buried, you know how payroll is run, you know how health insurance functions, you know how you deploy software, you you know all of the personalities of who you ask for what. And starting in an organization, you have to deal with all of the onboarding paperwork and you have to deal with the fact that they're going to want you to do work and you don't have that comfort built up yet. And this is probably the most critical time of making sure that you are kind of on and you are doing what you can to bring yourself on board in a reasonably quick period. It is not a sprint. You're not trying to be as fast as humanly possible because then you're going to miss things and it's going to be worse. But you are definitely trying to focus on showing your best self first. Well, it is every most people's first impression of you will be your ramp up. And paying attention, reading carefully, you know, Oh, I didn't see that email. Well, I sent it to you. Why not? Well, because you didn't read it, it doesn't look good. Also, one of the things I love doing is just getting in and doing the the work no one else wants to do. Um, you know, yeah, it's not glamorous, it's not fun, but honestly, it's the best way to learn an organization because you're going to end up having to reach other teams or uh, ping other people, and it, it really helps you learn an organization really well and. It, there's a lot of goodwill to your other tem- teammates when you're willing to say, "Hey, I'll you know I'll do whatever everybody else isn't wanting to do right now." And uh, you know, again, it's not going to be the the funnest thing to do, but it's going to be probably the most rewarding uh, in terms of your work experience there. And if yeah, you can... finding a project that you can do to to get your feet wet and know the team, 
especially as you ramp up to be a team leader, I think is critical. Um, one of the projects I did that sort of got my feet on the ground uh, before was the team wasn't using the latest Ubuntu AMI images on their EC2 nodes. And just being able to have you know, a handful of hours to, to finish that project for them taught me so much about what the, the infrastructure looked like internally that I could you know, stand on top of that knowledge to do better things. And it gets you goodwill with the organization, with the players who are already there, who see you as motivated and not afraid to pick up the tasks that may not be so glamorous. And don't underestimate how much impact that can have on the rest of the team. But yeah, imposter syndrome is a real thing. <laughs> I feel it when I change teams. Um, I think all of us feel it to, to some degree here and there. Um, it's a normal part of of life changes, of jobs changes, of, of professional challenges. I think if you're not feeling it changing jobs, something's wrong, honestly. Um, I, <laughs> new, new employee time is one of the absolute worst for me because, and you touched on earlier, you're used to the environment and now you know nothing. And it doesn't, even, it doesn't matter how much you know, you've used the tools they're using in the past. The environment's different just because they're using the same tool doesn't mean they're using it the same way. And those quirks will drive you crazy, especially if you come in with preconceived, oh, I already know how to do this. It's one of the reasons I can't stand uh, Atlassian Jira is, you know, everybody says you've used Jira before you knew how it works, right? Right. Well, Jira is so flexible to your internal workflow. There's not a single Jira instance that works the same way. So it's completely foreign every time. (laughs) <laughs> so one of the other challenges you have is when you start an organization, you don't know the people yet. Um, years and years and years ago, when I was an undergraduate student, the staff member who was overseeing the work that I was doing um, rotated out a couple of times while I was working there. And the last gentleman who came into that position was very clear about, I don't want to know the people you, you like working with and don't like working with. I don't want to hear anything about it. I want to form my own opinions. And it actually turned out really well because there were a handful of faculty that I got along with really well that he couldn't stand and vice versa. And so when (laughs) tickets came in, we we would just divvy things up and be like, oh, I don't really want to go over that building today. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'll I'll get it. I got that one. And then there were other ones that would be like, I'm dreading this one. I'm like, no, no, I, I get along with that faculty member very well. I'll just hop over and do it. So not letting somebody else's notions of of who the problems are, who the, the winners are. Yes. Take the time to kind of read the room and get to know the players and try not to be um, brought into especially internal political fights in your first, you know, days, weeks, months. Let let that happen more naturally and learn who those folks are. I'm sure that the rest of you have experiences of this as well. Yeah, yeah oh, my abs- tact is to always build relationships rather than then walk in like you know what you're doing. Exactly. And I, I try not to let, as you were mentioning, Brendan, what other what other people, how other people view other uh, individuals allow that to influence my thoughts on them. I, I try to allow people to, uh, you know, I'll, I give people time to judge them for myself. Because, I mean, and, and, I, and, and I try not to let first impressions linger either just because it, it just may be an off day for that individual or, 
they they may be going through a rough time. So I try to give people the benefit of the doubt and give them a long runway uh, before it's like, eh, you know, because we, we all have bad days. We all have uh, down times. So I try not hey, to. You give them at least three or four days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Another thing is I had one of my favorite managers when you, um, I had years ago. You know, he didn't interview with the entire team when he was interviewing. He interviewed a couple, a couple of people. Once he started, he asked everybody to update their resumes and come in and bring it to him. And he talked to everyone individually for an hour to pop with their resume just so he had a clear idea who they were and who his team was. It was not not an interview for a job in any way. Just I want to get to know you. Now that's really come cool. into my office and bring your resume. Exactly. <laughs> now, and one of my friends who I'm still friends with that worked with this guy too. When he turned in his notice, I cried because I have never had a manager I wanted to stay with more than this guy. And it wasn't just this one thing. It was years of dealing with him. He was a fantastic leader who knew how to do it. And you don't always get that, <laughs> as we sorely know. Um, and But this was just one thing that he did that was just a fantastic way of getting to know the team. No pressure. Just, I want to know who you are. But technically as well as personally. And it really worked out. One of the common patterns, just before we leave this topic, is that I've seen in Silicon Valley companies is the idea that new engineers, new ops folks should either do a deploy or write some code or do something that goes out really fast, like, like ideally the very first day, day but God, within that. a couple of days. But the idea is we're going to go ahead and break down all the barriers for you knowing like asking the dumb questions of where do I put my public key? Where do I do this? Where do I do that? And so you feel very quickly like you've accomplished something that you've, you've gotten far enough into the system that you're actually able to do work. Um, there is nothing. It's kind of the pinnacle of, of your SRE activities, your DevOps workflow uh, that you can onboard a new employee and have them, you know, deploy to production on that first day. Um, that's, you know, a major goal for, uh, for your DevOps environment. And so I understand why people reach for that. But, you know, on the other side of that, that's really intimidating. And are the changes you're pushing really useful? And sometimes, most of the time, I get, you know, brought in to work on something very specific that's going to take a lot more yeah. uh, study to figure out what's going on. And so... Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about that that particular practice. Well, I mean, even if your first commit, even if your first thing that you're pushing is giving yourself access to something, it gets you into the system deep enough that you understand what's going on and everybody else can kind of see you come in. And to me, that's the more valuable part of it than actually writing code or making an actual change. It's much more of the, you're one of us now. You put your SSH key here. This is how you commit it. This is how it deploys. This is where the build system is. This is where the PR approval system is. This is where those pieces are. We're validating that you actually have access to all of the things you need access to. You can check out the Git repos. You can do all of the things. Um, the number and of that's what I value, not the fact that I can change production on day one. 
I think the I think the biggest thing it tells is that you've got your environment set up well enough that somebody could actually accomplish that because I haven't been any place where that could that, that it could be pulled off, not not due to the engineer's fault, but because the environment isn't that smooth running that it would work. Well, that's the other thing because it it does tell you in in organizations where you can do that it tells you something about the level of detail they have paid to the onboarding process and to the idea of. We want to make sure that everybody here knows how these systems work. Yeah. And so in some ways, it's a really interesting litmus test of the organization you're joining to know how quickly you can be brought up to speed and get access to the things you need access to. Because spin-up time is is a lot. <laughs> Doing consulting work and walking through a couple different clients. Yeah. I've spent all I've spent yes I <laughs> I've think that I have done most of the last year in spin-up time yeah it seemed like and disclosure Jack and I were doing this together for a good while that as soon as we got comfortable and spun up well off to the next client and you start all over again yeah, as soon as I'm productive I'm done for x y and z reasons so I'm looking and, forward to staying spun up for a while <laughs> and this kind of brings me now to the last section I wanted to talk about with this whole thing. And that is, there's a whole part of your life outside of work that is rife with new opportunity. And some of these opportunities are not good opportunities. Um, this last year has demonstrated to us that there are many challenges that we are given that we have to react to and respond to. And once again, if you are just reacting to life, you're going to have a much worse time than if you're able to do anything at all proactive to meet it head on, um, to try to engage with it as much as you can and take control of that change that's coming at you. It will, it'll, it'll enable you to do much better, to feel better, to think better, to have better relationships with people outside of work. So I strongly recommend taking a look at the things in your life that you can do. So I want to talk about the elephant in the room. All of us are fairly privileged. We have IT jobs. We've taken advantage of, of the COVID economy and market that has upended so many people's jobs and livelihoods and health. And we've been able to ride the roller coaster and been able to figure out where the advantages are and use that to sort of take the next steps in our careers and in our livelihoods, um, which puts us in a very privileged position uh, compared to a lot of other folks that are working in this economy. And I think that's something important for me to acknowledge. And you try to figure out how, how we can support other folks in this economy that are working just as hard, but not able to make the same leaps. Well said, Jack. I 100% agree. I, my little contribution has been that I have uh, several friends, even some family members who are in obviously different positions than I am, but they're tr they are trying to pivot and they've needed technical assistance, whether it's to do uh, obviously just basic what kind of computer do I need or uh, more technical, like I'm trying to live stream or I'm trying to uh, you know, pivot into this software using this uh, e-commerce software and how would I go about doing this? So I've, I've tried to help out using my knowledge the best I can to those around me to help them in, 
better position themselves in this time? So for me, the easiest place to start on personal challenges um, is with physical and mental health. And mental is actually harder than physical because for physical health, if you just got up and take a, took a walk, like around the room, around the house, around the block, wherever you are, wherever you are in a, a place that you can do this, that it's safe, obviously with COVID, it's, it's really put a, a damper on a lot of people's physical activity. But a 10 minute walk every day, it clears your head, it gets your blood moving, it makes you feel extraordinarily better. And again, this is, this is not getting a gym membership. This is not doing anything. You're not trying to run a marathon. It's just doing something that's active for your physical health has an incredible dividends to pay to you later. I've tried to use that as kind of the gap between working from home and you transitioning back to the family. I don't want to bring them into what I'm struggling with at work. It's not fair to them. And I'm used to being able to have that drive or that something that separates the two. And with COVID land, it's difficult to separate them. This, you know, my, my current situation is so less than optimal. You know, we're stuck with working from home. The kids are at home and we've moved to a different country and have a much smaller place. I have no place to go to. I work on the kitchen table because there's no place else. And, you know, I can't keep work away from the family because I'm doing my work in the middle of the family. And it's really, really difficult. You know, I'm not unique. So I don't worry about the kids, you know, being loud in the background too much because believe me, I hear it from others as well. But the flip side is I never can let it go. It's always right here. So Ken, I know that you're relatively athletic. You've been doing karate and martial arts for years and years. What are you doing now for moving your body? What, what do you, how are you meeting that? Not now? a damn thing. And it's, Ouch. it is my mental, it's a big drain on my mental health is the lack of physical activity that I used to be doing. And now I'm not, um, luckily Amsterdam is a very walking, biking friendly city, as everyone knows. And that is my mode of transportation. So just going to the grocery store is a couple kilometer walk. It feels wonderful. Um, when the kids were in school, we would take the tram to the school and then I'd walk the two and a half kilometers back. And I was getting a lot of, a lot of physical activity that way. And it really helped. Um, they've locked us down even harder. And now I can go to the grocery store, but that's it pretty much. And I'm not getting the physical activity I used to get, which was a lot. (laughs) And it's hard. And at my age, I'm really scared about when this is done and I try to get back to physical activity. Am I going to be able to? And if I am, how long is it going to take to get back in shape? Because in your 50s, you don't rebound like you did in your 20s. Uh, But I think finding, you know, like you said, go for a walk. Any place, no matter how locked down they are, if you're out walking, generally you're okay. You don't have to be no no public exposure, but you don't just don't congregate. Go for a walk. Go for a bike ride. So what new hobbies have you done, Brendan? 
Well, I, I've always been dabbling in espresso machines and those kinds of things. I've also gotten this summer into making camping equipment, um, hammocks and bug nets and all kinds of things. It's something I can do with my hands that is tangible. So much of the work that we do is not tangible, visible at the end of the day. You you can't hold it and say, hey, I, I made this thing or I worked on this thing. You can say, hey, there's this pile of code and the website loads a little faster. And it doesn't have the same ring to it. So I used to love to, if I had something I was struggling with at work, I could go downstairs into the server room and, you know, work. There was always some cable management to do some servers to rack and do some work with my hands and see actual progress. And that let whatever I was blocked against in, in, in the job upstairs, it turned in the back of my head. And by the time I got upstairs, I had some new approaches. I definitely miss that. Yeah, I miss my cars. Couldn't bring classic cars to the to Europe, and that was my decompression was go make make the car work smoother, run or <laughs> run it all, um, and I miss being able to wrench. Jared, mine's uh, woodworking. Uh, really picked it up in the last few years, and uh, and funny enough, it, it, you know there's a big push in woodworking to do a lot of things in like CAD programs like uh SketchUp or Fusion 360 but I actually since yeah, my day job can't print that yeah exactly they, they, well the and and CNC machines are becoming the rage but I actually revert to just using like paper and pencil for my plans and uh I do use power tools but uh I do have some hand tools that I use as well but I I try not to be too technical with it just because it is a hobby slash escape from uh, computers. So if I spend another two hours designing something in CAD, yes, I may have been able to work out all the bugs, so to speak, virtually. But again, that's that's me doing the same thing as my day job. So I, I actually tend to try to like do things as much as I can on pen and paper and I, I, and use my hands as much as possible. To, to go back to Brendan's point, that at the end of the day, there's something physical that I made that wasn't there before. I converted raw materials into something different, and that is a nice thing to have. And you're not making like fine fine cabinetry for a paying customer as a side hustle. Then you're worried about you know delivery and the, the wood get marred a little bit or whatever. It's no, this, you're making the stuff for yourself to use, and the only critic is going to be you looking at the, at the work you did. Exactly. I I don't foresee it becoming something I do professionally. I'm not going to take money from clients to make it because again like you just said then it, it turns into a job uh you know it's it's more about furniture for the house or for things that we'll use that you know it's just a nice possibly family heirloom at some point and and dear listeners if you're wondering why in interviews people ask about what do you do outside of work what do you what are your hobbies they're not trying to pry into your personal life they're trying to assess if you are doing things that are not just work. If you have interest, if you have the ability to meet other mental, emotional needs and not just get bogged down and burn out at work all the time. So this is kind of what that is. It's, it's, it's finding other things to engage your brain, engage your interest, engage your passion. So you can grow as a person and not just be doing a job that you're eh, about and getting stuck. I used to do a lot of singing, but in COVID land, I'm now the most feared member of society, a trained tenor. Yeah, sing, singing is, um, 
counterindicated at this point. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on on email, feedback at operations.fm. If you are interested in sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast, please let us know. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Rodin Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. You know, I've always referred to problems at work as opportunities. Hmm...